0: Romans 14 today, and uh, a, a quick caveat, um, a ton of what I'm uh, going to talk about today as we look at this is found in a book by Ken Sandy and Kevin Johnson called Resolving Everyday Conflict. So, uh, lest you think I'm just jacking all their stuff, uh, this is a very uh, uh, biblically-centered book, and uh, I think we see Paul… Uh, dealing with this very stuff here in Romans 14, so uh, I would encourage you to go pick that book up. But we're doing this uh, in the context of a series called Made for More. You heard us talking about that a little bit with Tori and Bethany. Uh, we've been on this journey uh, to, to answer three big questions. Who has God made us to be? What has God called us to do? And uh, where are we supposed to go and do that? And um, we've been answering that on a, like a church level here on Sunday mornings. And then in our community groups, which I would encourage you to, to be a part of, uh, you can find a link to that in the Bible app, uh, the different groups we have. Um, they're, they're answering it on a much more personal level, all right? So, so far, a quick recap. We've talked about the idea that uh, as the body of Christ goes, we want to be a kneecap. A kneecap is a really interesting part of the body that ties into the strength of of a quad and makes us be able to run or to walk. So how as a church, can we help others be able to run, to walk, to move as God has called them to go? We've talked about um, loving outside of our gifts. It's one thing that we want to do. Uh, man, what are our gifts? But let us not get stuck in that. Let us be about other people. And uh, we, re- we were reminded that uh, the central calling of being made for more is simply loving people the way Christ would love them. Uh, and then we've, uh, we've talked about as well, uh, what's the third one? I'm going to uh, follow Jesus first. Whew. Man, I should remember this, right? Follow Jesus first. And we talked about how we should live in our community and amongst government leaders and other leaders in our lives. And today, we're going to talk about being peacemakers. Being peacemakers, all right? So that's the context that we're going to be in as we come to Romans 14. So I'm going to pray and ask that the Lord would speak to us from his word really quickly, and we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it be the authority of our lives, and may you, through your Spirit, teach it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Milan Lucic, I'm probably butchering his name. Here's a picture of him. He's a hockey player. I know very little about hockey, but this man has been in 72 count them, 72 fights in his hockey career. That's impressive. Uh, I think. I think it's impressive. I'm really not sure. Um, But less than 10 games into the current hockey season, he has already been in two fights. That's like, I mean, 20% of the time he is in a fight. Again, I don't know if it's impressive or scary. I'm really not sure. Um, In case you're wondering, I learned all this on a a really interesting website called HockeyFights.com. HockeyFights.com. So uh, stay in the Bible app. Don't flip over there. Just wait till after church. HockeyFights.com. You can find any stat that you can imagine on hockey fights. Very impressive. Um, There's video footage of certain fights, and on those fights with video footage, you can vote for which person you think won. Uh, You can also comment on every fight, and then there's stats. And Milan Lusich is the all-time number one hockey fighter, according to HockeyFights.com. That's amazing. I mean, who wouldn't want to be known for that? <laughs> Some You wouldn't. All right, that's good. He, this guys he's already ahead. He's got the sermon figured out. I've also learned this this week, very, very much so in my real life. The only thing worse than getting a black eye in a fight is getting a black eye from yourself. Lovely Magnolia, our youngest, on Wednesday night. I don't know if you can see that from out there. Wednesday night, we'd eaten dinner. We're chilling. We're going to have a good evening. And Magnolia goes running across the living room, trips over her own feet, and finds a wooden stool with the bridge of her nose. She's crying. I pick her up. It's a little bit blue. She wants her mom. I hand her to her mom. And in the time it takes mom to turn, that had appeared on her face. And I'm like, oh, Caitlin, we gotta do something. And so we ended up going to urgent care, and we we discovered gratefully that it wasn't broken. And um, she just smiled through the whole thing. So, uh, third children gotta love them; they're amazing. There's a uh, there's a ton of ways to get a black eye, a ton of them. But self-inflicted wounds, friendly fire, man, that is the worst. That is the worst. I don't know uh, what your story is today. I don't know why you're here, Um, but I do know that when we are engaged in fighting that ends up with a black eye, especially when it's self-inflicted or friendly fire, man, it just—it just hurts. You know, we began the series in Romans chapter twelve talking about being a body and the unity that should come with that, and yet church hurt, fights, conflict. Being in tension with people that we we think are like, man, they're close friends. These are people that I've walked with the Lord with. Man, when those happen, it's like like this incident with Magnolia. It's like you didn't even see it coming. You just trip into them, and before you know it, you're bloodied and bruised. And we forget that those are actually wounds against ourself. They're self-inflicted wounds because we're one body. You know, the same can be true... Uh, why we're grateful for Tori and Bethany, right? The, the wounds of marriage. A wound in marriage is so much deeper oftentimes than, than others because two have become one. God has worked a miracle and it's like being punched in the face by yourself. That's a, that's a fun visual to think about. Right? These wounds, like we just, like fighting hurts, but it especially hurts when they're self-inflicted or, or man, we're, it's just, man, it's so painful. So today, I think Romans 14 speaks to what happens when we end up fighting, when we're in conflict with one another. And so this may be something that you've never done, but I want to invite you to do something with me today. Um, I'm going to ask you to join me. Would you join me right now in asking the Holy Spirit to show you conflict in your life that needs to be resolved? The prayer is simply this. Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind as we go through this next 25 minutes conflict in my life that is going unresolved? Maybe today you've never even expressed your faith in God that way. Because see, to simply pray that prayer is an act of faith. Like, I'm trusting that the God of the universe would show that to me. But would you trust him in that way today? Trust him. Just say that little breath prayer under your breath, in your head. Holy Spirit, help me to see a fight. I'm in that's affecting me, and show me how the power of the gospel can resolve it. It's a prayer. See, when there's conflict, our human response is fight or flight. This isn't anything uh, unusual to most of us. It's fight or flight, and we see this in the text today. Romans 14, chapter, uh, verse 1, Paul says this, Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters.'" And then he goes on to talk about a specific issue that the Romans were dealing with. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. You say, we're just arguing about what we're going to eat. Well, Thanksgiving's coming up, and before you judge them, you think about what you're going to eat on Thanksgiving, right? I mean, there's some, uh, there's some opinions on that. But for the Romans in their context, this was, a, this was more than just what they were eating. This was also tied to, to their faith. and It was one of those issues that you think it's nothing, and before you know it, it's blown up because it's very personal. It's spiritual to, to one side. And so this is a a fight that is about more than food. This was highly spiritual. And he goes on uh, later in verse verse 5, I believe it is, and he begins to talk about they're fighting over the Sabbath, what day they're going to to gather together and and to be the church together. Can you imagine if I stood up here and said, hey, guys, guess what? We've decided from now on we're just going to have church on Saturday morning at 9 (laughs) a.m. I don't think so. But these are the kind of issues that Paul is addressing. You know, this shows what's true for many of us, that when conflict comes, our first response for some of us is to fight. We're going to pick the fight. We're going to make sure this, this gets taken care of, and we're going to make sure that it gets taken care of in the way that we want it to happen. We fight over anything, over everything. But as Paul continues to write, we jump down to verse 7, and, and Paul kind of introduces the other side of this. when he says, for none of us, lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. You know, this is one of those truths that none of us uh, really want to, to accept. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable because it puts us in a position where we're not in control anymore. For some of us, this is how we handle conflict, right? When the conflict comes, we're like, well, I'm just going to escape, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run from it, I'm going to get away from it, and I'm going to get back to a place where I am in control. If this is you, this statement may ring true. When we live for ourselves, we tell ourselves there's a lot of things that we don't have to live with. Well, I don't have to live with that. You know what they did over there? I don't have to live with that. And in reality, what we're doing is we're saying, I define what I live with and what I die for. We end up saying things like, I don't have to live with my spouse. If they're going to treat me that way, I don't have to live with my spouse. Maybe it's work. If they're going to treat me that way, if they're going to say those kinds of things, they're going to disrespect me that way, I don't have to put up with the boss that does that. For me, there's many days that I'm tempted to just say, well, I can just cut Louisville fans out of my life. Kidding, kidding. Now hear me carefully, by no means am I proposing that we should submit to abusive or hurtful acts. But I also think in our culture today, there is a tendency to to cry out that things are unfair when in fact, the Lord is putting us in a position where we can submit to him and to his power and his control. Fight or flight. Those man-made terms, we just accept them. But what if there's something in between? What if there's something more than a fight, something more than flight, something more in the middle, something that requires more than our human effort to achieve, something that requires God to show up? What if when there's conflict or fight going on, there's an option that, that mandates that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, would show up and do something that no one would believe? Something that is more empowered by the gospel. I think this is exactly what Paul and what God has in mind. Romans twelve eighteen, a verse we ran into just a couple weeks ago, says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, this idea of peace is, yeah, we all accept it. Like, peace sounds great. World peace. It's the answer, right? But Paul says, as far as it depends on you. That suggests that there is something to achieving peace that doesn't depend on us. And that is what we want to tap into as Christ followers. Because at the end of the day, we recognize that peacemaking comes naturally to no one. Peacemaking comes naturally to no one. No one is like, oh yes, peace all the time. Everything is good. And if you're saying that, you're not at peace with yourself. Peacemaking comes naturally to no one. And so what is it about Christ that we can see in this text that would help us here at Christ Community as the church in Shelbyville be peacemakers? How can we tap into the gospel power in our daily lives to be peacemakers? Paul writes, verse 7 and following, for none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, We belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, verse 9, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. You see, Jesus crushes conflict because he is the Prince of Peace. Jesus crushes conflict because he is the Prince of Peace. Not only because of what Christ did on the cross, but also because of who he is. Jesus crushes the conflict in your life. He doesn't prevent it, but he most definitely is the one who brings peace in the middle of the storm. So what is it that Jesus does in the middle of our conflict? And the answer is seen here in verse 9. Jesus crushes the arguments of our conflict. It says, Christ died and returned to life for this, for this purpose. There's a purpose statement here, right? He did it so that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. I can imagine Jesus trying to teach us this passage saying something like this. Listen, it is not about you. It doesn't say, Christ died and returned to life for this. Fill in your name in the blank so that he would be loved, this person. It is certainly not less than that, but it is so much more than that. It's easy to think that, that we've made everything about your, your personal decision, but my purpose is bigger than that. That's what Jesus would say. It's not less than that. I came to save you. I came to forgive you, but I came to be the Lord of the dead and the living. I came for everyone. So what was that you were saying about those people that you don't like over there? Come again? Come again? You see, Jesus and who he is and what he did on the cross crushes conflict because he takes away our arguments that I am better. But how does he do this? How does Jesus do that in our, our everyday lives? What, what is it that, that he did that makes that true? I, you, say, you may be saying to yourself, I want that kind of peace in my life. But how does Jesus do it? Isaiah 9, 6 gives us insight. And I love this verse, and it's one that we're going to be hearing a lot more as Christmas comes. It says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of, what's it say? Peace. Peace. See, Jesus crushed conflict by coming and being with us. Emmanuel, God with us we are nearing Christmas and every year we celebrate that Jesus came. I love it because it is so important to what we believe. We believe that Christ came to be with us, the God of the universe in the flesh, that he was with us, poopy diapers and all. Jesus wasn't and still isn't distant as you are walking through the problems of this life. He is with you. He is with you. But why? Why would the God of the universe choose to to do incarnation? Why would he come and be with us to crush our conflict? It's because he's in the middle of a bigger plan to crush the instigator of our conflict. Romans 16 verse 20 says this. The God of, what's it say, peace, will soon crush Satan. Under your feet. You see, as Jesus calls you and I to Himself, and our conflict fades away in the vastness of God's love and His mercy for us, and and in, in the vastness of His great power, it's all a part of His grand plan to crush the head of a serpent named Satan. That Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit in the first place. And so when He, that is Christ, begins to work in our lives and call us to Himself, And then as he's doing that, call us to be peacemakers. And as our lives begin to be characterized by peace, that is all part of a plan that shows that Christ is crushing the head of our enemy, the instigator of all the conflict. And as a result, you and I, our willingness to be peacemakers is directly connected to our opportunities to let Christ shine the more we are willing to let God use us as peacemakers in our lives and in our world, the more often we are going to be able to let Christ shine. That's huge. Think about it. A fight, even the potential for a fight, draws everyone's attention. It has allowed things for hockeyfights.com to exist. And so what if in the middle of all the conflicts that we face, we choose to be peacemakers, empowered by the Spirit of God. You see, if we can learn to be peacemakers, we can invite Christ to do something that only he can do in the presence of all who are watching. So what does that look like for us as a church family? How can we be peacemakers at CCC? Let me ask some vision-type questions. Could we be the church where people see marriages that are functioning with peace? And wouldn't it be amazing if people thought, man, if I, like, I see healthy marriages that just flow out of that church, <sighs> that would be great. Can the people of our church be the ones that promote peace within our school system as we continue to, to adapt to, to two high schools and everything that comes with that? What if in the midst of everybody trying to figure out who's better and who's worse, if our people became agents for peacemaking inside of that? How can we be the church that promotes actual peace between churches? Like we really wanna see churches working together. What is it that we could do to see that happen? Could we be the church where real racial reconciliation is happening? Not just in word, but in deed actual change in our community and in relationships between black and white and hispanic what if can we hold ourselves responsible to be the agents god uses to promote peace between even neighborhoods in our community no longer looking at a neighborhood and characterizing it as this or that or in one way or another but in being the ones who unite the community because of the gospel that unites us that's peacemaking But none of this happens if you haven't made peace with God yourself. Today, if you're here and you're not walking with Jesus, I want you to know that Christ alone can bring peace to your life that you will never experience on your own. Never. There's a lot of things that you can do to be a little bit more at peace, but it is never the kind of peace that you will experience that you experience when you walk with the Prince of Peace. He brings peace that you won't experience by having great friends or by experiencing the best places on earth. He brings peace that passes understanding. And if you aren't walking with him, if you aren't giving your life to him as we saw Sophie and Wyatt do, that's why I want you to. So that you might experience the peace of Christ. That's part of making peace with yourself and with God. But there's a little bit more to it as well. This Made for More series, uh, it's, it's so encouraging to hear what God is stirring up in people's lives, but it should not be something that confuses us about what God is asking us to do. Because you see, this series isn't an empowerment series that's trying to tell you, you can be anything you want to be. It's far from that. This series is about making peace with who God has already made you to be. This series is about being at peace with what he already has you doing. It's about making peace with where he has you right now. And as you allow Christ to bring peace within yourself, he begins to use you for more than you could have ever achieved with your own power. That's what it means to be made for more. This is the first step of being a peacemaker. To be at peace with God yourself. But then what? How do we become agents of peace? How do we be peacemakers? In the book Resolving Everyday Conflict, they say this peacemaking is applying the gospel and God's principles for problem solving to everyday life. And I believe as we read through the rest of Romans 14, we're going to see those principles in action. The first one is simply this go higher. Go higher. The question is, how can I focus on God in this situation? We get this from the verses that we read just a little bit earlier, right? Seven through nine, where he says, life, death, it's not for yourself. Jesus is the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul is calling his readers out of their current life and back into the presence of God in these verses. And he makes no bones about it. You don't live for yourself. You don't even die for yourself. So get over yourself for a moment. How can you focus on God in this situation? Our children uh, that you've heard us talk about, you saw down here, community kids are going through something called catechisms this year. uh, And the very first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer that the kids are learning is, we are not our own, but belong to God. You know how many things in the world would go smoother if every person just learned that? We are not our own, but we belong to God. This may be something that in the heat of the battle, you have to vocalize. Right? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before everything gets out of hand, how can we focus on God in this situation? Like, let's just bring Him into it. Go higher. Because our flesh will want us to focus on the issue at hand. Earlier in my ministry, I was sitting in a ministry's board meeting on a night when a contested decision had been made, and it was contested enough that some folks had come to protest by standing outside the building. So we're sitting in this boardroom and one of the leaders attempts to start the meeting by reading scripture and praying and then a very godly, a very respected board member angrily burst out, "How can we focus on that when people are literally outside the door protesting us?" And my flesh is going, "That's a fair question." <laughs> but the gospel is saying, "How can we focus on God in this situation?" Because if we do, he is the prince of peace. He will help us to know how to resolve this conflict. Order was restored, but it just goes to show that recognizing a need to focus on God and actually doing it are two entirely different things. Perhaps the most practical reason that I believe there is to strive for a daily time of scripture reading and prayer is to learn how to focus on God before you have to. So uh, really quickly, because I'm super practical on things like this, three ways you can do that. One, the Bible app that I recommended to you has a ton of devotions you can read. Two others that I really enjoy, uh, maybe you're into prayer, uh, one that I'm picking up and working through right now, Five Things to Pray for Your City by Pete Nicholas and Helen Thorne. Uh, Very good stuff. And then maybe you just want to dig into who is God. I would recommend Experiencing the Trinity by Joe Thorne. Great stuff. Both of those are devotionals that you can do in five, ten minutes a day, helping you to learn how to focus on God. So you got to go higher. That's the first step. We see that in verse 7 9. Uh, the second is get real, verses 10 through 12. And the question is, how can I own my part of this conflict? How can I own my part of this conflict? Verses 10 through 12, look at what he says in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I love Paul's writing because it's inspired by the Spirit and is so balanced to the gospel. He doesn't just say, don't judge people, which is what our world likes to say today. Don't judge me and don't judge them. Don't judge anyone. But he reminds them at the same time that they will have to stand before God as he judges them. Paul connects the dots. He steps on toes. I mean, he does it right here. Nobody lives for, or dies for himself. Jesus is Lord over both the dead and the giving. Tell me again why you're judging people because the reminder is we're all going to stand in front of God and he will judge us. That's a scary thing to just think about. He repeats it again in verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, as hard as it is to even give an account of ourselves to one another, one day, one day you and I will have to own our sin in front of God himself. You know what the beautiful thing is? On that day, when we give an account of ourselves to God, if we have given our lives to following Jesus, Jesus will step in and say, Father, this one's on me. This one's on me. When conflict exists, if we are unwilling to find something to own, we will never get to an honest conversation. Ownership opens the door to conversation because talking to an owner changes the conversation. I know that because I have a man in our family named Eric Allen, and everyone needs an Eric Allen in their family. Recently, he was on the phone with Spectrum trying to navigate a bill because his mother has just recently passed, and he was trying to work out all the details. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe not because you've got somebody in your family like an Eric Allen who takes all of these things. Gets on the phone, hi, I need to talk to somebody about canceling this bill. Goes through the rigmarole I'm gonna to need to talk to your manager. Gets on the phone with the manager, still not satisfactory. I'm gonna to need to talk to an owner, right? Like I wanna to talk to an owner. Everybody needs somebody in their family like an Eric Allen. Can I get an amen? Oh my goodness. But the reality is, is that when we talk to an owner, everything changes. And the same is true for us in conflict. If we are willing to own our part of the conflict, everything about the conversation changes everything. This is, this happens differently for different people. If you're an internal processor, you're going to have to go to that person and ask for time to figure out what part of the conflict you need to own. Internal processors, do this with me. This is me, right? Don't just sit and stew and allow false narratives to crop up. Don't point fingers at somebody else to buy time while you think about what you need to own. Just ask for time to figure out what you need to own. If you're an external processor, Talk through it gently and use clear phrases like, I realize that I need to own my part in this conflict. Maybe you say, I'm not sure what that is yet, but I'm trying to figure it out. Maybe you say, I need to own that I, and you fill in the blank. But you must own your part of the conflict. Everything changes after that. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, hey, remember, don't judge, because you're going to be judged. And you have to own your stuff in front of God himself. Go higher. Get real gently engage. The question is, how can I help others own their contribution to this conflict? Order is important, right? This question is only effective if we have answered what we can own first. Verse 13, Paul continues, he says, therefore, right, it comes after, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister Gently engaging is more about getting the stumbling blocks and pitfalls out of the way than it is about pointing out people's sins. Let me say that again. Gently engaging is more about getting the stumbling blocks and pitfalls out of the way than it is pointing out people's sins. Galatians 6.1 reminds us of this truth. But it also challenges us to keep going. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. As you are engaging others in conflict, time is your friend. You need time to discern. Is this hurting our relationship? Is this hurting someone else? Is this hurting them? Is this dishonoring God? Face-to-face is always preferred. Please don't text. A phone calls should be your worst option. When we do this, we step with great humility. And when we step with great humility, this causes Christ to shine. This is where the presence of the Holy Spirit is a must. You can't do this well on your own. So we go higher, we get real, we gently engage, and then we get together. The question is, how can I give forgiveness and help reach a reasonable solution? Paul writes in verses 19 and 20, So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Like, really? Like, you don't know what conflict the Holy Spirit has been bringing to my mind, and you just want me to forgive? Really? Promote peace, encourage that person? Really? Only through the power of the gospel. And we remember these truths about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is a radical decision to not hold an offense against an offender. Radical. Has the Holy Spirit brought a conflict to your mind? I pray that he has. All of us have them. And I want to take the words that Paul wrote in verse 20 and encourage you to think about them as you apply this text today of being a peacemaker. Don't tear down God's work because of what's that conflict. Blake, don't tear down God's work because of that conflict. Y'all, this is mission critical. Hebrews 12:14 reminds us to pursue peace with everyone and holiness, holiness, because without it no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace because without it no one will see the Lord. Everything else that we do can be destroyed by our unwillingness to be peacemakers. Let me close with a story that I heard uh, one of my professors, former professors, tell this week. His name was Mark. He tells a story of the day that he got a call from his wife. He was teaching a class, so it was strange that she was calling. She gets on the phone and says, Mark, we have a problem. Joseph, our son, has a screw through his toe. Do what? Yeah, he's got a screw through a toe. What, what happened? She goes, you know the towel rack in the bathroom? Joseph saw it as a jungle gym. He said He was climbing the bathroom wall trying to flip himself over backwards when the towel rack came out of the wall. They both flipped over backwards, and by odd fate, he landed on the towel rack, and as he landed on the towel rack, the drywall screw that was in the wall went through his toe. How amazing would it be to get that call at work? (laughs) Hey guys, sorry, I gotta go. My son's got a screw in his toe. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That would just be amazing. So maybe Joseph's conflict isn't the kind of conflict that we've been thinking about or talking about today, but you try and tell that to Joseph. I'm pretty sure he was in conflict that day. He had a conflict. So their family meets at the ER. And uh, as you might guess, he quickly became the interest of the hospital. Everybody was flocking to this ER room to see the x-ray of the screw in the toe. And as Mark tells the story, he said there, was, there had to be 10 to 15 doctors. All of them are huddled around trying to figure out how they're going to get the screw out of Joseph's toe. Because what they decided was that, you know, you've got those little ribs on screws, right? Like, this isn't just a nail, this is a screw. And they're like, if we just pull this thing out, we're going to do so much damage because of the ribs on the side of the screw. So they're trying to figure it out. All these doctors huddled around four-year-old Joseph, and they decide the best way to get it out was to unscrew it. True story. They call the maintenance man. Hey, maintenance, could you bring up a screwdriver? So the maintenance man comes into his room. We've got 10 to 15 doctors, a family, and a maintenance man with a screwdriver. And they're talking about how they're going to get this screw out of Joseph's toe. Joseph's a little four-year-old boy. He's starting to get a little bit scared. And he, Mark, as he tells the story, he says, after a few minutes, Joseph yells out in his little kid voice, I need to talk to my daddy. Kind of look around. And everybody clears out. So it's Mark and Joseph. He says, Daddy, I got three questions. Is this going to make me one willy fast? Mark's telling the story, and he's like, I'm his dad. I'm trying to think about how I'm going to answer these questions. Like, this is a little kid question, but i got to answer it. And he's like, I, I realize in my brain, you will run faster without a screw in your toe than, than with one in there. So he's like, yeah, buddy, you're going to be able to run faster. He says, all right. Is this, is this going to hurt? He said, yeah, buddy, it is, but it's worth it. He said, all right, Dad, can we twist them? He said, what do you mean, son? He said, those doctors, can we twist them? He said, yeah, buddy, we can. Y'all, unless you're living in a world that I don't live in, conflict is inevitable. Sometimes you never see it coming. Sometimes you fall into it. We all face it, it hurts. It happens in the weirdest ways. But when it happens, conflict draws the attention of everyone around you. Everyone wants to see what happens. Resolving conflict is going to hurt, but it's worth it. Resolving conflict is ultimately about trusting the great physician to get the screw out of your toe. Church, let's be peacemakers. Make peace with God today. Make peace with who he has made you to be so that you can be more by being a peacemaker. Peacemakers see conflict as an opportunity to solve problems in a way that not only benefits everyone involved, but also honors God. So be peacemakers. Be peacemakers. Today, as we respond to the Prince of Peace... We remember, as we take communion, that Jesus guaranteed our eternal peace, peace that lasts forever when he submitted to death on a cross and came back to life. And he did that for the purpose of becoming the Lord of both the dead and the living. So today, if you're a baptized believer in Christ, as you saw Sophie and Wyatt do, we invite you to come forward, take a piece of the bread that represents Christ's body and dip it in the juice that represents his blood. And as you take that, I want you to be reminded of the peace that you have because of Christ's presence in your life. And I want you to make peace with him. Today, if you don't have peace with the Lord, seek it out. Seek him. I'll be in the back. I'd love to talk to you about what your next step is in doing that. Just maybe to pray with you. I don't know. But we want to seek the Lord together. The band is going to come and lead us in song. As we respond to the gospel, as we respond to the fact that we serve a God who is the Prince of Peace, if you've not given your life to him today, know that that's my greatest wish for you. Not so that we can have more numbers or not so that we can celebrate something, but so that you can have peace with the creator of the universe, who's prepared good works for you in advance, that you might follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so grateful that you are the ultimate peacemaker, the prince of peace, and that you want peace in our lives. You crush our conflict. And so God, I pray that in this room today, as you through the spirit have stirred up conflicts in our lives, I pray that you would go with us and that you would help us to be peacemakers in those elements. Help us to think about how we can go higher and and bring you in or get real about our part or engage, get together with them. Father, we're so grateful that you sent Jesus to be with us. And so as we take communion this morning, as we sing, as we respond to the gospel, may you put that heavy on our hearts that, that you are with us even more intimately now through your spirit. And Father, for any person who is here that is not at peace with you, would you give them the courage through your spirit to, to step out, to make a decision, to give their life to you, to follow you, so that they might experience the peace of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.